Welcome back to our spin-off show, Another 10 Questions, and this time we revisit one of our most popular guests, my friend, the comedian, broadcaster, architecture enthusiast, and design aficionado, Tim Ross. Check out his new book, Scorcher, a book of short stories which is available at modernistabooks.com. That's modernistabooks.com. And talking of books, you know I have to mention my book, 12 Summers, a memoir with a distinctive cricket flavour. To buy that, head to 12summers.org. That's 12summers.org. Back to Tim. Now, most of Australia knows him from his stage, radio and TV partnership with Merrick Watts. But more recently, he's travelled the world performing live shows with a focus on architecture and design. I was lucky enough to see Tim's longest-running show, Man About the House, at Robin Boyd's Wall Street House in South Yarra, Melbourne, and it was one of the great, heartwarming, soul-cleansing nights of theatre I've seen. As well as the live shows, Tim's hosted and produced the acclaimed ABC documentaries Streets of Your Town and Designing a Legacy, which profiles the Australian psyche via the houses we choose to build and live in. I start off this episode of Another 10 Questions by asking Tim how he thinks his work colleagues would describe him. Lazy, daddy, frustrating, oh, and that's when they're being kind. Uh, no, I, I mean, I'm taking the piss here, um, thoughtful and considerate, <laughs> but um, mostly I think it's important to, there's no point, there's no one's, no one wants to hear about how nice people are in, in a work environment or they want to hear about your faults, don't you? Really, that's what you're looking for. Um, but the beautiful thing is that, oh, you know, the, my small team only work with two people constantly. Uh, they, uh, they, they know me very well and work around. Like any great relationship, they work around my faults very very well and they're very forgiving and they also talk about me when i'm not there rosso's team includes two loyal souls who have worked with him for years across tv publishing podcasting and his live shows and i suppose what what draws all of us to enjoy working together is an interest in doing different projects in different ways Mm. and so everyone gets excited about not every day is the same and there's always some ridiculous idea that I come up with and they want to do that makes no sense and no one understands and they have to get their head around it and make it happen with me. So, yeah, they're very good people. As wonderful as it is to have loyal work colleagues, they tend not to let you get away with anything. I remember after the Agony Uncles launch, um, we had a few beers, but you had to watch out because you knew that your producer would be able to tell from the tone of your voice how many beers you'd had the night before. And it's apparently, you know, that she could just hear it at the slightly higher register. Yeah. Is that true? Yeah. Yeah. Well, they all did. Yeah. I mean, they could all, all, all t- tell, um, you know, America particularly could, um, you know, tell at some stage, you know, I've been, especially doing up the, the show up the line, you know, via, um, you know, they'd be in the one studio, I'd be in Melbourne and I'd be in Sydney or whatever. And you'd pretend that you hadn't had, oh, yeah, I got in at about 11 and you really just had two hours sleep <laughs> or something. <laughs> you'd, you'd get into the pre-meeting and you'd go, oh, no. and they go, oh, fuck, no, no. no, I'm fine. And yeah, and I think in those days, you, it was part of what you did. Really, it was um, it was the hangover of that acceptance of boozing. I suppose mm. it was really interesting because you know you'd know this well. Um, you know, we we grew up with our sporting heroes splashing cans all over each other on the TV. Yeah, um, it's. 
incredible to think about today. Yeah. And even, you know, it's going on now, I suppose, when we we're doing promote, Mez and I were doing promotions on the radio, but we would literally have a listener party and it would be come along and get on the cans with us. Yeah. And people would turn up and you could have drunk a hundred schooners and no one would have stopped you. The pub might have, mm. but there was no, well, we, there was an open bar and the idea was that you were going to come and get smashed. And that was the hook. <laughs> there was nothing else. It's extraordinary, isn't it? And it's why people get in trouble, isn't it? In our game is because there's often not a reason not to. Mm. You're working on stage. There's no one to tell you that you're in a pub. There's no one to tell you that you can't. Um, particularly for musos, oh. um, goes with it. So it's a, it's a slippery slope. I've slipped, I've slipped on the slope plenty of times. Ross is not alone in drawing attention to the pitfalls of being a live performer in pubs and clubs. Comedian Will Anderson said on the Watch Your Problem podcast that alcohol is intrinsically a part of the community in which I operate, so it makes it a lot harder to identify when the behaviour is becoming problematic. Moving on to question two, what's the most unhelpful feedback Rosso's ever received? There's so many. I, 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 <laughs> the, one, the one that probably hurt the most, right, is a woman called Ruth Ritchie. Uh, I used to write for the Herald TV critic, right? Yeah, I remember her. Yeah. And so one day I got asked to do a talk at Government House and Ruth was on, she was on the lineup. And Ruth once in one of her, and it, I don't think it was a, it wasn't a review of one of the shows, but she was just talking about the talent of the time. And she did say of Merrick and I that we wouldn't have been fit to sweep up the sawdust in the studio of GTV9 in Burton Graham's day. So you can feel my pain, right? Yeah. It's a hard one to bounce back from, but we're still here, okay? But it was, it's, so anyway, so I did the talk and I, 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 it went pretty well and I was, and I put a lot of effort into it. She was actually terrible. It was, it was, it was not her thing. She's a writer. She did it, but she wasn't very good. And I'd been imagining this thing and there's a, I think it's, um, there's some short story. I can't remember who did it about this guy who imagines that he saw the guy who bullied him on the train. And then he goes to, he thinks about all the things he'll say to him. And then he confronts him at the end of the train trip. And it's actually not the person at all. And it reminded me of that situation. So I ended up talking to her and she said, oh, do you met? I said, no, we haven't met. And, you know, I suppose you've written about me a few times. She said, oh yeah, you know, like, she said, oh, were they all good? And I went, "Mm, not so much. She said, no, I would have written some good things. And I said, no, you actually said this once. And I told her and she went, you got to admit, it's a good line. Oh, fuck. <laughs> Fucking hell. And I had to agree, to be honest. It's a, it's a really strange thing seeing, seeing, the, seeing those people because often they forget, they forget that they've sledged you. No, I, I mean, I have, totally. I mean, and sometimes you get blamed for it. I was speaking to this woman in London who was telling me about her ex-boyfriend who hated my guts because I'd said something about a film that he'd made. It's like, you know, just throw things at the TV if I was ever on. And so I said, okay, who is what's his name? I've never heard of him. What was the film called? Never seen it. She said, yeah, yeah, you said something about it when you were doing breakfast at Triple J. I went, I never did breakfast at Triple J and I never saw that film. It wasn't me. So they've been hating on me 
when he should have been hating on Will or Spency for 15 years. <laughs> There's a whole lot of shit DVDs of mine that he could have been buying. <laughs> Oh, question three, mate. What is the failure you most cherish? The one that the one that was the that I cherish is I, was, I did a really crappy show for like a comedy festival, really back in the day. And yeah, I came up with an idea, came up with a good poster, got the venue, and it just didn't work. And I was sort of embarrassed by it. I was like, oh, we're on stage, and it's like this show was terrible. I didn't spend enough time rehearsing it, writing it. Too inexperienced. It's in a pub venue, people, you know, the manager was playing pinball when we were talking and all that sort of stuff. It was just a disaster. Um, and so what I did is I just just took a break and like I stopped performing for a little while. I was doing drama at university instead of acting in the play. I painted the sets instead and enjoyed that. And then it gave me some space to think about what I was going to do next and how I wanted to do it and the ideas I had. And then that time and space led me to actually reaching out to Merrick. Wow. Yeah. So, um, which was. And you knew Merrick beforehand? Yeah, yeah, yeah. So we'd been, I'd met him and you know, we'd become friends from the stand up circuit, but, and he'd done some, you know, we'd done some events together and bits and pieces, but nothing sort of like, you know, working on a show. Um, and I always like collaborating with people, you know. Um, yeah. And that was, you know, been in bands and that was sort of what I was used to. And I think being, um, being a drama student makes you 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 tend to to see the world in that way as well. So um, mm. you know the I don't mind performing by myself now, but it was, for years it wasn't wasn't my favourite thing in the world to do. Um, oh, I like it now. I like the power of it. But um, but back then I was sort of like I wanted to. I liked the idea of you know creating things with other people. So that that one that one was particularly good. But then you just do things i did this show once for channel seven called australia versus which i was just hosting and the premise of it was that comedians from different countries would debate each other um it's a clip show basically you know who's got who's got the best love song is it john paul young's uh, love is in the air or is it krista berg's lady in red and then you know yeah 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 have the debate whatever and uh, you know they were they 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 kept they they kept everything pretty cheap, and we were uh, down in Wollongong in this old theatre doing the links for it. And like I, I think I'd done the first lot of links for the show, and then they changed the show, but they kept the same links. Oh, other than and so the links didn't quite work. <laughs> what, was, what was going on? And so we we went back. To, that was for the first two episodes or something, and we were going. We were back in Wollongong to record the next day day after it'd gone to air or something and and then the next day i'd stayed that night in Wollongong. i woke up in this crappy little motel got on my computer oh let's have a look what daily telegraph's saying and um there was a photo of me on the front page and the and the and the headline was is this the worst show ever because we'd come off the show had come off the back of packed the rafters right which was doing 1.7 and I think Australia versus at 930 or whatever did 700,000, which today, you know. Oh yeah. Uh, beer and Skittles. Yeah. But then, today. then it was a disaster. Um, you know, the old name got taken off a few whiteboards after that for a while, <laughs> but you know, but like all those situations, you know, those things happen and you know, cause you have good ones, you have bad ones. And you always think when, when you're somewhere, 
Uh, and people are reading out your resume, you know, oh, here's a blurb about who you are. They never, they never have the failures. No. And a friend of mine used to um, run this thing called FailCon, where you talk about all your failures. Oh, that's brilliant. And I, and I did that. And it was, I think that was, that was really formative for me in terms of changing how I would perform and how I would speak because I'd never really done anything like that. So it could be funny, but it's, it, but it's, but it was also informative and it was also, you know, what can you learn from your failures? So to, to rattle, I rattle off a bunch of stories about when things fell over um, was sort of empowering. And then, cause ultimately the, the, the reason for them is that you learn from them and you, in the end, they become great stories that you can, yeah, you can laugh at yourself and you, and your lack of talent. Oh, I am interested in, in that situation where you did the one man show, didn't work. And then you went back to drum school and you painted sets. And the, and the reason for that was that you, you were giving yourself space. I felt also that you did that after, after you finished radio and you kind of segued into the career you've got now, it was almost like you did that again. You just gave yourself a bit of time and went, what's next? What do I want to do? Does that, is that right? Yeah. I mean, you can't, it doesn't always come with, um, you know, there are moments in everyone's career where you, um, you, they're not choices you make yourself, you know, sometimes, you right. know, particularly after say that channel seven thing, you know, like that was it for that year, there wasn't going to be another thing, but I, that forced me to go and realize that, that like, if I was going to, I was, I was going to have to do something else. It was, that I had to create. And so I wrote my first book off the back of that um, because That's of that. Right. Otherwise, you know, I'd be still co-hosting the Olympics on seven. Um, <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I think, you know, finding that space um, and the, the moments like I just, I just had one with, you know, with lockdowns, they, that, that does that for you. You have the same anxiety but you've got a who do I hear talking about this the other day um uh, Colin Hay from Men at Work you know they can take everything away from you but they can't take away your creativity um that's right yeah and so you know it's an interesting thought isn't it that you can it doesn't mean you're not anxious about what the future is but there is still that that desire to create things and make things um and when that space is sometimes forced on you you can and it can be personal it doesn't have to be you know a work thing you can learn to play guitar, learn to draw, That's spend, right. time kids, spend time with your kids or just, um, you know, cook or drink more. Um, question four, if you could go back five years, what advice would you give yourself? I don't book that trip to Italy in 2021. Um, <laughs> I think it's really dangerous to think about because it's all tinged with regrets. You know, I would, I would probably tell myself, you know, to, to not sweat stuff, but I could go back to myself at 18 or 15 and, and do that and to enjoy the moment. But we've all got it in front of us. We all know what the, the blueprint is, but we choose to ignore it. Mm. Spend more mm. time with the kids, spend more time with friends. Don't worry about work, you know, all those mm. things. It will be fine. Everything will work itself out. Um, you know, after your health, all, that, all those things, but we choose not to because we are insane um we're hard enough on ourselves as it is mm. to play this god if, if only i knew mm. you know we've all seen it some guy on their deathbed i wish i did this i wish i did that we know what it is mm. but that pathway is not 
necessarily the most interesting. That's right. Yeah. It doesn't capture capture you at the moment. Otherwise, no one would work and all they would do is hang out with their children. We'd still be living in caves, just patting our kids. You know, we need the roller coaster. You know, it's like how how we the way that we enjoy cities. Mm. The best cities are the ones that are a hot mess, that are dangerous, that are risky, and you um, aren't particularly well planned. And they just uh, they come at you. Yeah, that's yeah. what. I mean, that's not every. You know, not everyone's life needs to be that, but to a certain extent, um, we do like to complicate things. Yeah, um, especially entertainers. Oh yeah. What about your job keeps you awake at night? All of it and none of it. Um, I sleep pretty well, which is good, but I um, I just like to be able to keep doing it forever mm. until I just don't want to. So that's that's what I think about, and I just think, and I think the world's in a better place to um, people in their seventies to punch out a living doing a bit of the old soft shoe tap. Um, yeah, it's more about, uh, it's more about small business now. It's like, you know, if we're all, all entertainers have to be small business people now. Yeah. And, um, like the idea, you know, in the old days where you kind of, you, you went out and, and did something, you just hope someone noticed you, well, that's all gone. You, what you're doing is you're building something and you're hoping to kind of partner with other people and so yeah. a little bit more kind of, uh, agency over your career. Yeah. But you can't control how the world deals with people who are, 65, 70, 75, who knows, you know, Mm. Um, you know, and you also don't know, you know, no one can work out what you want to do when you're 70, but I presume I'll quite like to still be reasonably relevant in the small way that I do what I do. Mm. Um, You hope that, that, that people still would take your calls. Unfucking likely. Fucking not a chance. <laughs> no, well, I don't know. I mean, because everyone goes, why is he using the phone? Nobody <laughs> uses the phone anymore. Oh, mate. I mean, they're going to do that next year. Yeah. <laughs> um, no, it's, you have set yourself up where you, you're now, uh, it's not like you're working for Channel 7. You've set yourself up with a, with your own audience. No, well, that clearly didn't work out. <laughs> uh, but yeah, you would, you'd hope that, that, you know, that you can make enough things to make it work as much as you want to. I mean, I always, you know, some of those people like, you know, made it tell me about, you know, the great Stuart Wagstaff, you know, he's 93 and he's living in a tiny, tiny little apartment with, you know, no money when he died. Wow. Um, you know, as a person who was on TV my whole life. Yeah. Um, and you don't know what decisions they make and all those sorts of things, but, um, it's not. It's, it's just a downer to think about it. Sorry, mate. No, no. It's 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 very much part of our lives, and and you know, people think that. And I've I said this in the podcast many times, but people think that uh, Australians make a lot of money. Australian entertainers make a lot of money because they're used to seeing the money that American entertainers make. You know that, and we've seen many. You know. Uh, many examples of people leaving the logies in their taxes and going straight to the doll office. Yeah. Um, yeah, and, and you know all that, all those terror, those sad stories about people selling their logies, and and they, they that becomes such a the, the imagery of that I think connects with the public because they suddenly say, well, this is the the moment where I was at my most popular. Mm. 
moment and then now no one particularly cares mm-hmm. um uh, you know but i also think careers are different now you know those varying degrees of huge popularity you know there's more people around doing things and doing interesting things there's not as many there's, there's, i suppose there's more people being able to make a living in a varied way yeah in the broader entertainment industry i suppose yeah yeah um question six mate what's an obstacle you had to overcome i've got a very small mouth um and it's not always apparent (laughs) uh, and i don't really like talking about it because once people you know you're listening to this people will be googling to find out whether or not it's a really small mouth but because i've got a small mouth there's nowhere for it to go. So as it appears, I don't, you know, one of the criticisms of me that I always never seem to smile, but because I've got a tiny mouth, smiling's actually like when I smile, it's, it's, it's like pushing it to the hilt. Like uh-huh. I don't have a natural. So my natural, I've got a natural, you know, what we now call it, the resting bitch face or whatever. So, you know, and they'll go, oh, you don't look, you know, you're on TV or something doing something or other. Oh, here, smile. And you go, yeah. <laughs> Like, yeah, it's like the most forced thing in the world. And for some people, it's really easy. But with with, with my little smile, um, it, it made for my career as the co-host of the Seven Olympics very, very difficult, um, you know, because, you know, when, when I was throwing to Griggsy, she looked like I didn't smile at her. And, you know, she'd be crying in the breaks. He doesn't smile at me on set, you know. Mike Whitney never did this. He always was smiling. Uh, There you go. There's my obstacle, my small mouth. That's not true. (laughs) Was she really upset? No, I was never co-host in the Olympics. No. Um, No. Griggsy Griggsy did come to my house once for Better Homes and Gardens. That's right. Um, Which word or phrase do you most overuse? Um, it's two. Like one, I was like punch out some shows because you know that's ultimately <laughs> what what I do for a living. So I was like, oh, I'll just punch out some shows. What are we going to do? I don't know. Let's just punch out some shows, which is Joby's at its at its most basic level, you know. Um, and it's so old fashioned, really. You know, whether it's you're a musician or you're an actor or whatever. I love the way musos. Oh, just get out on tour. Yeah, yeah. Punch out some shows. Get a few get a few shows get going. Let's punch out some shows. Um, it's interesting because it actually motivates you in a way. Because it's it, it's a little bit hard, but it also gets you to kind of muscle up because you need to muscle yeah, let's up. Just go punch out. Yeah, what are we gonna do? Let's just go to Perth, punch out some shows. Um and that's probably the one. And I do say extraordinary too much. Oh, it's extraordinary. <laughs> extraordinary. Extraordinary, extraordinary, extraordinary. Question eight, how do you remain calm under pressure? Don't panic, sleep, drunk, deep breaths. I just get better, I think, with dealing with adversity as you get older, but nah, I mean, it's an old-fashioned panic merchant. (laughs) you. Me too, it's the anxiety. My my best mate, Kit, uh, who I do a bunch of work with, he, he... he always loved this moment when I was, I, we were down in the bank of the Murray and I had this old Datsun 260C and I managed to 
put it up on, on the bank of the river and I I put it over a log or something. I don't know what happened, but as soon as it happened, I completely panicked. Get the jack, get the jack. And so <laughs> for uh, 30 years, I think it's been now, almost 30 years, whenever there's some sort of panic moment involving me, he goes, get the jack, get the jack. <laughs> So uh, yeah, no, um, no I am. I, I, I've got, I've got, I've got, the, I've got the, I've got the panic sticks. Kit is Kit Warhurst from the band Rocket Science, who provides the musical element for Rosso's live shows, and is also a composer for television with credits that include Rosehaven, Fisk, and Problems. Moving on to question nine: What's Rosso's career high and low? Yeah, one would hope that you, you, the best is still to come. Um, I had a really nice moment with, um, with my dad after I made Streets for Your Town, the you know, architecture show for the ABC. And it was in the early stages of Dad's Dementia. And he'd watched it on the ABC when it came out, but he'd forgotten it. So when he was up to see me, you know, we sat down on the couch and we watched it together. Um, and there was a moment in where we went back to a old house um he was quite moved by the whole experience of watching it and he was holding my hand and um he just said to me you know his tears streaming down his face he said just keep making films like that son um oh wow and that was enough for me i think i think um that's lovely yeah i think it's so many of those things you do when you're a comedian aren't particularly palatable to your parents. Right. <laughs> so, tell, tell me about it, mate. <laughs> and so if there are, if there's a moment where that uh, your parents can either, you know, enjoy that and tell you in a way like that, it was, that was nice. It's the best buddy. It's the best. Uh, yeah. And then uh, the lowest moment, I was doing a promotion once for a bread company and or I had to create a sandwich and, and then I had to talk about this particular bread and wherever people would take me. And I, they flew me around and I would give the sandwiches out. And uh, so I'd be there and we'd be giving out sandwiches. And But one for one, whatever particular reason, when we got to Adelaide, we'd been doing them out of cafes where the cafe would create their own the sandwich and then you know, we'd give them away and people would register to go, come and get a free sandwich. And of course, everyone was really just interested in a free sandwich and, you know, didn't really want to talk to me. But anyway, I was the sandwich guy. And when we were in Adelaide, for whatever reason, we were in the park giving them away and no one came down for it. And the only people who wanted the sandwiches were people who were homeless, who were living in the park. And, um, the woman from the PR firm had asked me to stop giving them away to homeless people. Oh my God. And I was like, well, there's no one else wants them, but yeah, but we don't. And I was like, oh, wow. Oh dear. This is, this is, this is, this is the moment, isn't it? Yeah. This is not, this isn't co-hosting the Olympics with Griggsy. Oh my God. Yeah. 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 <laughs> but, um, but you know, I think there was, I think the, those varied gigs that go wrong and, there that and there's been a million of them. I remember one where I fucking forgot I was doing a corporate gig and I turned my phone off and then turned it on and then just by chance they said, Oh, can you um 
can you come 10 minutes earlier or half an hour earlier? And I went, oh, shit. And I had to put my suit on. I hadn't prepped. And basically in my jammies. <laughs> and I, I raced to this gig and my mind was not in that place. And I got on stage and it was not pretty in front of whatever, 300 people. And there was like, and I went well under time and it was being hosted by someone I knew who was having a very good night. And I was walking off stage and they were clearly not prepared to come back on stage because I was supposed to do whatever it was. And then I just sort of walked out and, and just going, oh, God, your peers going, oh, my God, he's terrible. I told Rosso the actor's version of that story is when your alarm doesn't go off and you wake up an hour and a half after your call time, turn on your phone, and you've got 32 new voicemail messages. They start off polite, Adam, we're just seeing if you're on your way, and end up apoplectic and full of rage, and you can never apologise enough. The, the reverse of that was when I used to work at Kiss, um, and Sandalins used to be sick all the time. Ah. It still is, I presume. It was this thing, you know, just not turn up. And so they just ring you at four o'clock. That's four o'clock in the morning. You know, saying, can you come in? And you sometimes I'd answer the phone and sometimes I wouldn't. And one particular time they sent someone around to knock on my door to get me to come in. <laughs> to do- they were doing it on air like a stunt. And it was like, <laughs> dude, not like a small baby. It's not my fault. My days of breakfast radio are well and truly over. Once in a while was a bit of fun, but like it's not. How about I think you're knocking on the wrong guy's door? Uh, how about you go and knock knock on Kyle's door and get him to get? Yeah, that's brilliant, mate. Because you know that time in LA, and I've told you about this, where I was um, doing voiceover in a studio down the line to Australia, and it was in the afternoon, and Kyle was living in in LA at the time, and. Um, and he loved it because he could just w- walk in in the afternoon and do breakfast radio. That's the whole point of living in LA. And he's there. And um, I'd never met him before, but he, re- you know, I-, I knew who he was and he kind of recognized me. He goes, G'day, mate. Oh, you G'day, mate. And I said, oh, You're a friend of Rosso's. He goes, I'm not Rosso. I'm Kyle. <laughs> I was I know you're Kyle. I said, You're a friend of Rosso's. I'm a friend of Rosso's too. Oh, yeah, yeah, Rosso. Great guy. Great guy. <laughs> do you love LA? I fucking love it. I fucking love LA. <laughs> Yeah, I mean, it was, that was the genius of it. I think, you know, everyone had thought that he was, you know, making movies or something. Is no, no, making doing it easy. Just didn't want to wake up early. It's so smart. Yeah, it's um, last question, mate. Do you have a motto? Yeah, yeah. I don't really do. No, I don't. Um, <laughs> no, it always, you know, they, oh, I'd always, I talk about this a bit actually because I got this. You know, I, those people who have inspirational quotes and I I, I, I don't like them. Like a, I had a friend who put one on Facebook, which was, you know, like um, sweat is your fat crying, you know. And it's like, yeah, it's like, really? You know, it's your body telling you that you need a glass of cordial or something. It's not science. And so I just always thought, oh, you know, these things, these mottos, inspirational quotes or whatever, they can be sort of sort of hollow. But I, what happened to me once, I was, um, when I started doing, getting into the architecture and design field in terms of shows and live shows and TV and whatever, started meeting a few interesting people. Uh, and I met this guy who, uh, Eames Demetrius, who's the grandson of Rand Charles Eames, the famous American designers. And I was a big fan of their chairs and their work and all that sort of stuff. And, you know, 
and we we're having a cup of tea one day and he gave me a book of his grandfather's quotes and I opened up the page and on the first page was the quote was um, take your pleasure seriously and what Eames meant by that was that you give the things that you love the respect that they deserve and um, so many people um, I, I met who will tell you that they used to play the violin but they don't play the violin anymore they used to play the piano or they used to paint or they used to go skiing or whatever it is and I think our own our, our dirty secret is that we we love our jobs far too much and we don't elevate those things that are the passion that give us passion mm. or we're passionate about in our lives um and so I realized that the the journey for me to embark on the things that I wanted to do whether that's you know meeting interesting people travel visiting and being around great design and working out what that makes makes the tick and 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 doing shows in all those houses and whatever. Um, I'd been doing that indeed and I'd sort of come full circle. And the reason that I had met Eames and I was given that book was because I was doing exactly that. I was taking my pleasure seriously. So that's, that's that's sort of how I roll. Thank you so much for tuning in to 10 Questions. If you'd like to subscribe to us on Patreon, we're at 10 Questions with Adam Zwar, and that's where you can get the bonus content on every interview. Until next time, thanks for joining us.